Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Today's event is just one of the things Clint, my co-editor, and I look forward to the most in the year. Um, It's a wonderful way to look back at this year of cinema and really reflect on, on the highlights. And, you know, our entire poll uh, exercise, our entire poll enterprise is like a really big beast uh, with multiple moving parts. So first of all, we have the best films of the year poll. Now, this is a poll that this year, 107 critics from all over the world voted on. And this poll was to decide the top 20 best films that received a release theatrically or on streaming in the U.S. in 2023. So we will tonight be counting down the top 10 out of those 20. And we will debate each and every pick with a, this wonderful uh, panel of guests that we have and with you all, hopefully. Uh, at the end of the night, we will announce the rest of the 20, the bottom, sorry, the rest of the 10, the bottom 10 of the 20. And we will also, well, that sounded very pejorative, but <laughs> trust me, they were... They all fought valiantly and made it to the top. Um, And then we also have a list of best undistributed films of the year. So we also like to poll all our voting critics on a list of the 10 best films of the year that do not have distribution in America. And this is our attempt to really champion films that may not have caught the eye of the industry yet, but that we as critics really believe deserve attention. Uh, We will also tomorrow be publishing the individual ballots submitted by all our participating critics. uh, So you can, you know, sort of see uh, who supported your picks and who didn't. And we will also have lists of the best shorts and best restorations of the year. So, yeah, you know, we really want to spotlight all the cinema that's out there. Okay, now that's out of the way. I would like to bring onto the stage our guests for tonight. So first of all, my co-editor at Film Comment, Clinton Crute. Recently featured on a Brooklyn fashion Instagram, for those of you who follow. Uh, we have Bilga Ebery, who is a critic at Vulture and New York Magazine. And one of our regulars for this uh, year-end event at this point. And we have Amy Taubin, who truly needs no introduction. I'm excited to agree with Amy, but even more excited to disagree with her tonight. So. Um, and I will just say before we kick off that our two panelists here know the top 10, but they don't know the ranking. We sent them that list in alphabetical order. So it's going to be a little bit of a surprise for them too. And as we go down the list, like shout out your guesses, you know, let's just see. I I would love to see like, you know, how many of you, uh, predict some of these rankings correctly. Should we start with number 10? So, let's reveal number 10 here. It is Claire Simone's Our Body, the 10th best movie definitively. 
according to our according to our critics poll. So, Bilga Amy, when we sent you the alphabetical list, did you were you surprised to see our body there in the top ten? Uh, no, I wasn't surprised, but I haven't seen it. I mean, it's had well, a you said lot you saw it twenty of, minutes. Uh, a lot of enthusiasm. Yeah, I think I'm kind of in the same boat. I was, I was not. I'd heard great things about it, and it's one of the films that was on my list of movies I have to catch up with at the end of the year. And I, of course, did not, so I didn't see it. And of course, I, my initial thought when I saw it on the list was like, <laughs> "Damn it, there's one I haven't seen. <laughs> I should have watched it." I think it was Clinton, my like one of our early favorites of the year. Uh, we saw it in, uh, in Berlin together, and really didn't know what exactly to expect from a three-hour documentary set in a gynecological ward of a public hospital. Um, and I remember it was like my first day in Berlin. I was incredibly jet-lagged. I did not think that I would be able to really stay up through a three-hour documentary. And I was not only riveted, I uh, was crying many times during the film. Yeah, it's an incredibly beautiful film. It is three hours, but it is a very beautiful film. I mean, I going in, I'd, Claire Simone's Mimi is one of my favorite movies, but I think that's from 90s, mid early mid-90s. And her previous film was about um, the f Parisian film school. What is the name of it? The famous one? La Famille. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And which was also like a really uh, subtle portrait of pedagogy I guess and learning and and was also really funny and so I kind of going in like I kind of knew this was going to be something I was going to probably like but um the cumulative power of the film did surprise me I think it was better than I expected I think that yeah I mean you interviewed uh Simone about the yeah, film I did and I think what I was really struck by with the film so it kind of for those of you who haven't seen it how many have seen it out of curiosity not a lot okay so take this as a sign to seek it out but you know it it is just a film composed of various interactions that uh people of i would say all genders but mostly women or or femme people have in this hospital with doctors and it the loose arc of the movie is that it starts with a person whose face is hidden, a young sort of underage girl wanting an abortion. And then it sort of goes through like goes to uh, through people who are seeking uh, assistance with gender transition, birth, children, uh, women. And children and young people. Yeah. Of so all ages. Yeah. yeah. You know, women dealing with reproductive issues, um, women dealing with menopause, fertility issues, all the way to stuff like breast cancer. So it's really like... And end of life scenarios for a lot of women. Right. Yeah. Hospice care. Um, so it's really like an arc of life, you know, birth to death and all the things that a person with a body may encounter in that time. But I think for me, what made me cry and what made me so moved was how people, especially women, whose pain is not always acknowledged in medical settings, you know, there's a long history of women's pain not being recognized, women being thought of as inherently capable of bearing pain, as if, you know, women are just built uh, to undergo pain. There are these moments in the film where women and, and people of various genders are trying to put their pain into words that a doctor will understand, right? And the doctor's job is to like take that and come up with a diagnosis. 
And watching that exchange is so moving because pain in the body is so overwhelming and, you know, you don't, it's hard to find words for it when a doctor says like, you know, when they ask you in the office, like from one to 10, how high is your pain? And it's such a ridiculous thing because, you know, pain doesn't feel relative to anything else when you feel it. And so watching that process, especially women and people with feminized bodies go through that and everything that comes up when you talk about your body, like psychology, feelings of failure, you know, ideas around romance, ideas about the future, all of that comes up in that space. And I and Simone just films that with such patience, with such care, you know, these are situations that are difficult to film in, people sharing really intimate details of their lives. And when I interviewed her, you know, she took permission from everyone, everyone that's on the film, she made sure to get permission from them. And she said that she felt like people really wanted to share their stories and their experiences because they wanted to feel like what they were experiencing was not the story of an individual, but of society, of culture. Um, so I found it just remarkable in that sense. And also how beautifully it encompasses various experiences of gender. You know, it's a really kind of modern feminist film in that way. And it's also kind of a portrait of the healthcare system. Before we move on, we don't have to keep talking. We can move on to a movie you guys have seen. Silence from the middle of the stage. Well, there, uh, there, there are a couple Let's keep others. our fingers crossed that it's a movie you guys have seen. Um, but Amy, did, were you going to chime in? Yeah, I just wanted to know where the hospital is. In Paris. Yeah. And it is a public hospital in Paris that provides a lot of these services at subsidized or, you know, free... Uh, for free to patients, which is... Is it the same public hospital that was in a film that came out in 23 that was in the film festival, right? De Humani Corporis yeah. Fabrica? Yeah. I don't believe it's the same hospital. Uh -huh. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's because, um, yeah, it's a, it's a different hospital. But what's interesting, so what's interesting, I mean, when you're saying that, it reminds me also of, of a series, of a, a scene where there's where protesters are protesting the hospital because of some um, abuse, uh, accusations of abuse that have been levied at some of the doctors there. And so there's like the, the document, the film kind of allows many different perspectives, many different angles on, um, on the healthcare, so on healthcare and like the way that it interacts with our bodies and the way that our bodies are part of become or forced into this kind of systemized space. And how powerless you can feel right. in that system. I was going to say, I think there's something to be said for the return of the patient documentary. Patient as in like patients, not patient as in hospital. Um, just because, I mean, we, we, we had a number of those this year. I mean, Occupied City, the Steve McQueen film, Youth. Uh, obviously, you know, Frederick Wiseman always delivers something, you know, extraordinary and extraordinarily long. But it is it is interesting, though, sort of in the wake of what was termed by many to be kind of the documentary revolution when you had a lot of sort of smaller films, some of them very good, but, you know, kind of very, um, I don't want to say user-friendly because it suggests that these films aren't, but kind of this, this period where documentaries were really kind of commodified. Undemanding, maybe? Undemanding, sometimes, you know. Um, to, we seem to have a resurgence of, of films that that, you know, that treat documentary as its own form with its own kind of 
cadence and running time and things like that that aren't trying to like just fit everything into like a 91 minute mill so that they can go into all these different layers that you're talking about. Yeah, I think it has a lot to do with like starting from a place of uh, not having fixed ideas about what you're going to make the movie about, really. And I think that in one of the another remarkable thing about this movie, I don't know if I'm giving away too much. Spoiler alert! It's the end of the year. Yeah. Um, so at one point, three quarters of the way through this very long movie, uh, it, Claire Simone herself becomes a patient, and uh, that becomes a part of. She, her body is actually becomes one of the uh, patients in the movie. Um, should we move on to number nine? Let's. Guesses? Bold. Bold, yes. Let's see what it is. We got number nine, number nine. Drum roll. To quote the, uh, the Beatles, I guess. The Will the powers <laughs> that be reveal number nine? Unrest. So, again, <laughs> we have a film that... An unexpected number nine, I think, for, my, for us, too. Definitely. Yeah. We were, like, how, checking how our calculations yeah, to make that's sure. That's a good question. Wow. Not too many. More than our body, I think. Yeah. Because it's screened here. Yeah. I know, Bilga, you were surprised at this one. I was shocked, uh, in part for this reason. So... As I was telling these guys, a couple of months ago, the IFC Center um, was having a, a William Friedkin retrospective, you know, in, in the wake of his death. And I went to see a screening of The Guardian, which is a film I'd never seen before. And they 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 said they were going to be showing it in 35 millimeter. It wasn't 35 millimeter, but because the advertisers is 35 millimeter, there were the four people in the room were all film critics. Um, and... Uh, and the, and they showed a trailer for this movie, and we all looked at each other like, "What the fuck is this film?" Because because it was we'd never heard of it, and it was you know, is it an IFC release? It was showing at IFC Center, so I'm assuming it was an IFC release. And I was like, what, "Like, what is it?" And it said it's like you know, Switzerland submission for the Academy Awards and things like that. Um, it was just. Because usually, I mean, we don't see everything, but we're usually aware of everything yeah, that's of coming out, especially something like this that had that seemed to have some kind of, you know, um, you know, prestige to it. Um, and we were just like, we've never heard of this movie. And then I never heard about it again until it showed up on this list. And I was like, really? <laughs> really? I mean, we it must be really good. We definitely had to check our our numbers twice. Like we were like, it's this. Is this, is this what the machine is spitting yeah. out here? We did, we did check our calculations twice, but I'm not, I wasn't quite as shocked as you, Bilga, because I, again, when this movie premiered again last year, not it premiered last year at the Berlinale. I think that's why also it feels like a surprise because its premiere was nearly two years ago, you know, which is not the, like most of these movies festival premieres were a little more recent. But I remember that there was a certain sect of critics, I think, who are well represented in the film comment poll, who were just sort of um, blown away by it. And I was definitely one of those two. I mean, I think this is uh, really a film unlike any other I have seen in a long time, especially in terms of a period movie, in terms of a movie about the nature of work and the organization of labor, the representation of work. Clint, I know you caught up with it recently. Um, yeah, it's, it's a 
it's it's it doesn't really follow, but it uh, one of the central character the cent the central character of the movie, I guess, is uh, Piotr uh, Kropotkin, the geographer and anarchist, famous for his book Memoirs of a Revolutionist, not to be confused with Memoirs of a Revolutionary. And so the film follows Kropotkin as he enters, as he visits this small mountain village in Switzerland in the Jura Mountains. I can't remember the Saint. Saint Imier, I believe, is the name of the village, and it's a it's a watchmaking village. Like the it's there's a watchmaking factory, and all the industry in the town is centered around watchmaking. So there's another factory that's collectively owned or collect that is uh, that produces um, parts that go to the um, watch factory, which is owned by this guy who's also a pol local politician. This sounds like the most Swiss movie it's ever. Extremely Swiss. So, and and there's a running joke in the movie about how there are three there are three uh, forms of time that the town follows. Municipal. It's, a, it's set in 1877, by the way. Oh yeah, also. 1877. Yeah. Sorry, I should have said that. Yeah, and at one point somebody says like, make some reference to the Paris Commune, and they're like, yeah, you know, that just happened like in Paris like recently, and here's what here's what went down. So I guess what the movie does is forces you to think about time and the use of time for different purposes, like the the way that the factory owner insti instills certain regimens of time on the on his employees, but also the way that the an the anarchist collective or the collectively owned um, factory like will also kind of use time to their own purposes, like the the regimenting of a day into a work day into a week. And um, and there's also like postal time and railway time. time. Yeah. And another thing that I found really interesting is um, this is also a time when, you know, there are people walking around um, who will offer to take your portraits in exchange right, right. for a fee. So it really is at that cusp of kind of like industrial, you know, uh, an industrial revolution type of uh, where all these technologies are coming into being. And so you really think about the role that time played in all these technologies that made up the modern world I mean, uh, yeah, in the and, 19th century. Yeah. And uh, the portrayal of the actual making of the watches is also kind of amazing. The, the movie's called Unrest because there's a part of a watch called the Unrest Wheel, which is which is like a kind of a, as, as I understood from the movie, I could be wrong if anybody's a watch expert, this kind of like spiral device that causes, uh, I don't know, perpetual motion, but a continuous motion to happen that will power the watch. And so... Um, you see these tiny, teeny, tiny pieces being kind of placed into the watches and carefully moved into place, and um, yeah, and that's that's like a big part of the of of the visuals of the film. Yeah, it sounds like a movie I'll, I'll actually really like. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing it. Somebody should re-release -re it. It's on Mubi. Like you can see it on a big screen. But you yeah. should see. Yeah. Bilga, you were just talking about the patient documentary. This is not a documentary, but it is an extraordinarily patient film. Um, but, 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 it's, but it's only like 91 minutes long, or it's a short movie. No, yeah. it's 90 minutes, and it's... I don't, and there's a love story at the heart. Yes. I don't mean that it's laborious in any way. I mean that it takes... it, Like the scenes that Clint is talking about, about these workers making the wheel, uh, the unrest wheel and the watches... It, it bestows this kind of loving attention to these small gestures. You know, you, you'll watch a long shot of 
the worker fiddling with these tiny, beautiful parts. So it's like they're workers, but what they're doing is very artistic. You know, it's very beautiful. The things that one can do with one's hands, like manual labor is beautiful. Right. And at the end, there's she, the, one of the workers is um, talking to Kropotkin and he asks her, like, I don't really understand what you do. Like, can you explain it? And she goes into like incredible detail. Like she's like knows more about watches than, you know, anyone here although i'm waiting for a watch expert to like shut me down at the, so yeah so and so the expertise required to be just kind of a manual labor in this factory is you know pretty immense yeah. and in that way i think it really is also you know it is capturing a point in history where like notions of time were we didn't have a consensual notion of time and so the representation also allows for this openness, you know, the, the way the shots, the way the narrative is structured, it feels very like what, you know, what Bilga was saying, it doesn't feel made for commodification. It feels like made for contemplation uh, is how I would put it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, Kropotkin might fall in love at the end. I'm not sure. <laughs> Another spoiler. I like to end these with the spoiler. <laughs> All right. And Okay, I did not see more than 15 minutes of this movie. I wanted to. I didn't, um, I rented it online. And I didn't rent it because it was on this list. I rented it because it was on Jim Hoberman's really peculiar list this year, but we'll get to that. Yes. <laughs> um, and it was the one film that I hadn't seen, and so I wanted to see it. And then... I rented it and I started watching it and it was very late at night. <laughs> and I thought I'd better turn it off and watch it tomorrow. And I didn't. But And then the rental expired. We've all been yeah, there. Yeah. But um the and and I will pay this three ninety nine again. It's well worth it. Cause the beginning of the movie is really interesting. But what um what I found, uh, how do I say it? Swiss watches are, when we think about Switzerland, one of the things we think of is watches. And no Swiss filmmaker has ever before, documentary or fiction, as far as I know, made a film about the making of the object that Switzerland is identified with. It's Swiss watches and mountains, you know, lots of mountain movies, but I've never seen a watch movie. Well, well make we sure you... I realized we didn't mention the filmmaker's name, did we? Cyril Schaublin, yeah. yeah. Ex excellent filmmaker. So make sure to watch this movie. <laughs> All right, let's move on to number eight. We need really need to get to something Bilga and Amy have seen. <laughs> it might not happen. All right. Uh, I, don't know I feel like that's an insult <laughs> to some of these movies. What? Come on. <laughs> number eight. All right, number eight. Let's see what number eight is. Reveal the film, Magical Person, The Zone of Interest. Okay. I was going to say, I keep calling him Brian Grazer, who I think is the producer of Arrested Development. And yeah. I have this thing in doubt, like locked into confusing these people. By him, Clinton's Jonathan, Jonathan Glazer, Glazer yes. the director of The Zone of Interest, which I think many of you, uh, I assume from your applause, have seen. We showed it at the festival. Uh, 
I know Amy has thoughts about the film, but Bilga, let's start with you and kind of um, lay out the film a little bit for us. Oh, God. Do you mean describe the zone of interest? Um, what you thought of it, I guess. Well, I, 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 I like zone of interest a lot. I saw it at Cannes. And by the way, I am noticing, um, I mean, so far, the two films that I haven't seen were both Berlin titles, and that's the festival I don't go to, which, you know, and then a lot of the other films are Cannes and Venice titles. Um, but, uh, I mean, zone of interest is, I mean, to describe it is to kind of, explain the movie you, it, it's about the the the, the family uh of the uh of the guy that basically runs auschwitz and you know their very pleasant uh, pastoral life in this house with these beautiful gardens right outside of auschwitz and the film is basically them kind of going about their days it's very sort of mundane um, and 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 gentle and lush, and in the background you hear distant sounds of screaming and gunshots and you know dogs and you know the walls of Auschwitz are right behind them. Um, harrowing film, I think. I, you know, I, I know it's weird. I mean, I, I like the film a lot. It, it didn't make my uh, top ten or top twenty. Um, I admire it greatly. I was moved by a lot of it. I think. I think it works. I also know a lot of people who don't like the film at all. So yeah, no, I, I, and I feel like I'm. It's weirdly I find myself some, somewhere in the middle, even though I am, uh, I am someone who who likes the film a lot. But but there is a part of me that 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 thinks that thinks there is, um, you know, a lot of film critics I know, I know are really into rigor and and filmmakers that kind of are, are very rigorous in their approach, and this film demonstrates that. At times, though, I also think to myself, would a different kind of approach have actually had just as much of an impact and not felt so much like an installation, say? I don't have any moral problems with what Glazer is doing. Um, I mean, I'd, I'd love to hear. I haven't, I haven't read Amy on, on the film, so I'm curious to hear her thoughts. Okay. I wasn't interested enough to write. Um, I, I don't understand why... It's controversial or anyone really thinks it's a great film. When I said Hoberman's list was peculiar, it's because this film is number one on his list. And this is Hoberman's subject. And so I am very, um, I'll talk to him about it maybe tomorrow. Um, I thought it was a totally empty film or I thought it was a one-idea film. He had an idea, but I liked Jonathan Glazer's films at the beginning. I liked Sexy Beast, which I thought was terrific. I kind of liked the one with Nicole Kidman, uh, but that mostly because Harris Davidista did such phenomenal cinematography. But the more Jonathan Glazer seems to have an idea that then he wants to stretch to two hours or whatever. Um, I just don't think there's anything there. I mean, you know, oh yes, these people, and you know, it's odd because I read an interview with him where he started talking about the banality of evil, that concept. I didn't find these people particularly banal or not. Um, I don't believe in evil, but um, they wanted a nice house and a job with a lot of power, and they got it. 
Um, and they thought, they never thought anything about Jews, probably except that they're vermin, but that's not said in the film. There's nothing that engages what on earth they are doing or think they're doing. And there's just one tiny uh, reference to Hansel and Gretel, like like um, German children are indoctrinated to throw people in ovens because they read Hansel and Gretel when they're children. That's absurd. Um, <laughs> Uh, so I didn't like this movie. I've seen some really brilliant movies about the Holocaust, uh, and Jessica Holland has made two of them, Angry Harvest and Europa Europa. And of course, there's um, uh, Night in Fog by Alan René, which is a great film. And actually, Anthony Lane, in his mixed review of this film, noted that... Um, uh, Alain René had done w what this film does and more in 20 minutes in Night and Fog. So that's where I stand. I, I was going to say, I, I, so I can also talk a bit, little bit about the circumstances under which I saw this at Cannes because it was, it was one, of the, um, one of the screening rooms at Cannes where if you sit in the right seat or the wrong seat, as it were, uh, the person sitting in front of you will completely block out the subtitles. So for much of this film, I could not understand a single thing anybody was saying because I was like craning my head and not catching most of the dialogue. But actually, I, at, at the same time, I realized it's not really that important what they're saying because it's, I'm going to say, I don't think the movie is actually about the Holocaust. I think the movie is about the way that the way that we kind of carry on our lives in the presence of great evil, um, which I think is very much something that I think we can all relate to, should be able to relate to, or possibly even at this very moment. But, you know, it's, I do think that that's, there is a connection there. And that's not necessarily, that's not, I don't think that's like a, a, a great insight on my part. I mean, every filmmaker who makes a movie about the past says, well, it's really about the present. But I really do think that that's kind of what he's going for. And as a result, I think some of the, some of the things he elides, I think, speak to that. Now, I actually, I did not catch the Hansel and Gretel reference. So, um, but, but that was the thing that made the film moving for me was sort of the connection he was able to make to sort of me sitting in that room in you know in, in at the Cannes Film Festival watching this movie and how this connected to sort of my life. I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not the commander of Auschwitz, obviously, but um, but it is something that, you know, th there is a leap there that he's working at and he's doing it through style. And I thought that was, I thought that was very impressive. I think this movie is, is interesting and, but I have like kind of, I'm compelled by what Amy says about it too. I mean, uh, so there's a scene late in the film when it's when it switches to show the uh, uh, Auschwitz-Birkenau Museum, and you see this this window filled with shoes that looks like a movie screen, and you're sort of I guess you're supposed to be uh, think of this as like uh, you're compartmentalizing this horrible atrocity in the same way like that the the museum is doing. It turns it into this kind of dead object behind a piece of glass. It's not really something that we can actively comprehend or experience. Um, and I, it, so, uh, but I think like 
I also think that it's interesting, this idea of like, uh, the way that we can continue our daily lives while great evil is going on is kind of what the movie's about. But I don't think that that really gets it. Like the systematic, like it takes more than two people. Like even if the Haas family had said like, I don't want to do this anymore and stood up, you know, the whole world was doing this. But the whole world isn't in this film. Right. And ordinary people living elsewhere. Well, we see the Polish resistance this is happening. Fighters, right? This film isn't about them. This film is about uh, a couple and their children mm -hmm. who get great power and, and a nice house for right. doing this job. And they are, and he is the architect. I think that's what I'm saying. Like, I agree with it. you. I think that that's like actually kind of fails to draw any kind of connection with yeah. regular experience. Right? I really wish, Amy, you were here for our New York Film Festival rap panel where I was the only naysayer for the zone of interest <laughs> i've just seen it so you have to give me i have to, um, have but to. amy you put it you to me you put my feelings about the film very precisely and i think one thing that i want to underline is these people that amy said is that the characters to me are not banal so to the film to me is not about the banality of evil because they are not banal right. he's the art he's the commandant of auschwitz it's he gains incredible power and capital from actively and his life is not banal every day he goes to work in auschwitz we just don't see that work i don't actually think um, the movie glorifies him at all but i think what i was getting at is that i think what the movie thinks it's doing is showing all of us how we could be just like them they were normal people but they aren't normal people so to me it doesn't make me feel like oh, these, these people could just be the people around me because they are not banal in any way. In fact, I think what the movie does is say, these people were like monstrous and you are not, you know? And by eliding the fact that they were holders and wielders of great and power. And we see people who are, other remark, the child who leaves the apples and like and the like Polish resistance fighter or woman, yeah. you know? So we see these people who are also, you know, we don't, I, yeah, I don't know. We don't have to keep talking about this movie. I think. I think let's let's talk about a movie that we're that is number seven <laughs> on the list. I was gonna say that we're on it that we're enthusiastically Clint. all behind, but I can't promise that that is the case. Clint does not like conflict. Just to remind everybody, there were over a hundred critics. We're just four. There's just four on the stage. We can't promise. All right, number seven on the countdown is. Da, 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 da. A fire! Oh, it's <laughs> and I and I regret to inform you that we are not going to have consensus. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, I interviewed Pat Sold about this film, which you can read online. Thank you for mentioning that. We've got that. the uh, the the number one Pat Sold fan here. And the woman who tried to leave the press screening That's because right. she hated it so much. I did. Oh, wait. But we know. But we do know that she saw the whole film no, because the I door was, would not she open. Hated the I room. didn't hate it so much. I was just bored out of my mind. <laughs> Important distinction. I'm sorry, Amy. <laughs> um, I don't know. Do should I go first? Do you? You I go think first. Tell, I, so I mean, tell I, us what the movie's about. Should I tell us all as an impartial victim? <laughs> I will. I will. So uh, this film is about this like uh, annoying guy who's a writer 
who's a young man who's a novelist, and he goes to with his friend to a country house where he can work on his second novel. And he's maybe like 28 and 29-ish guy. And so he's he and his friend, who's a photographer, are going out to work on their various art projects in the countryside at the at uh his friend's country house. They arrive and um there's a woman there who was a boarder who um has loud sex at night and bothers them and is just sort of a free spirit, magical... It's an important plot detail, yeah. <laughs> sort of a, a uh, manic dream, pixie dream girl, but German version. And then the sour, grumpy novelist, his heart is melted by the presence of a vibrant, thoughtful woman... So I didn't like you're, this movie very much. Really so why doing, don't we take over? Here, this, pl- this plot summary is not my... neutral at all. No. <laughs> um, I don't know. Bilga, did you want to maybe? Well, I, I'm not sure I could summarize the plot. I, I liked The Fire. I didn't, I didn't you know, uh, uh, there are other Petzold films I've liked more. Um, I will say it has, a, I mean, a couple of phenomenal performances. Um, I mean, Paula Beer is is incredible. And you know, one of her best performances. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting because there's another film, not about the banality of evil, but but it, here's another film about how kind of... The banality of men. Well, no, but also a film about how we we kind of go about our day, and by we, I mean all of us, not men specifically, but, uh, <laughs> but how we go about our day while, like, the, the world is burning. I mean, the, the, it's, it's a climate change movie right. uh, or a climate disaster movie. But it only is in, like, at the it, end, you know, it, there's it, a whole it, movie until it reaches that. Yeah, no, of course, but 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 that's sort of like percolating in the distance, and it sort of builds up, um, and that you know th- that I thought was a fascinating w- way to do it. I, I don't, you know, it's um, it's a film that I, I know a lot of people really loved, and I'm curious to hear more about your thoughts so, on it. Having you know talked to the director, you want to finish the plot summary? I oh, guess. Sorry, yeah. what, I mean, that, that's the setup, right? But I think it also just to be clear, it's no, it's knowingly. He's knowingly using these tropes, these yeah, kind of like romantic comedy. It's not no. Really a I mean, plot, it, yeah. I would say it has a lot of gestures that are borrowed from different genres. I mean, what I was really taken with, I was taken with the opening immediately when these two men are driving through the woods and the car breaks down yeah. and they're looking at the skies. Everything's a little creepy. Classic American horror movie trope. And there's elements of that. There's elements of Eric Romare, you know, uh, just the uh, tragedies of heterosexuality. There's also some uh, there's there's also some queer love in the movie. But it has, you know, Petzl really described it as a summer movie, and he thinks of summer movies of being of two types: the American summer movie, which is usually kids having fun without adults, and something bad happens, and the French summer movie, which is about falling in love. Right, like the and he's sort of bringing those ideas together in this movie about a pair of young artists who basically go away into this house in the woods to work on their projects and meet this woman who is sort of um, for much of the movie the protagonist of the movie played by the actor uh, Thomas Schubert, wonderful performance, is really snooty towards this woman because he thinks you know she's just an ice cream seller and doesn't seem very cultured and then. It turns out that she's a PhD in literature uh, and really shows him, you know, shows him his place. And so it's kind of them 
you know, being petty over things like love and art and intellectual superiority. But this is the summer movie of today. Today's kids in the summer know that the world is burning. It doesn't matter if you're right, like falling in love. It doesn't matter if you're writing the great novel. You can feel the earth getting warmer, you know, and you can feel like disaster unfolding all around you. And so what I found really affecting about this movie is that it's two things. It's one that it really captures this feeling of futility in the face, like youth, like youthful aspirations feel so futile in today's world. And so many movies of Petzold are about how love can like save you, right? Love can rescue you. And this movie is like, it doesn't matter anymore. You can fall in love. It doesn't matter. It's all going to go away. I mean, that sounds so nihilistic. It's, it's a very beautiful movie too. And it's also like, I think a great movie about, I was saying this about unrest, about the nature of work, about intellectual work versus manual work, you know, what it means to work and how we assign different valences. You know, we have this idea that artistic work is really special and manual or seasonal work is not. And it's really grappling with those uh, differences as well. And like really what the summer represents in the movie is also a time of leisure that some can use to think and the others have to just use to make their like daily paycheck, you know. So that's my <laughs> that's my argument, Amy. Now, now yeah. you go. I mean, my problem with... In general, I don't really like his movies very much. I think they're totally dull. Uh, uh, but this movie in particular irritated me because at a certain moment, the central character is a novelist. And his first novel has been extremely successful. And you see... He, or someone reads or he reads bits of it and you see bits of it on the page and it is good writing. The novel that he's working on that eventually you will see bits of is so bad that no one who wrote that first novel could possibly have put down a single one of those sentences. The reason suddenly he's forgotten how to write never Amy. is that they need to construct a plot where he Amy, is lost and rejected. Just because everything you write is great doesn't mean the rest of us don't struggle sometimes. <laughs> no, no, I mean, we all struggle. Writing is hard, but you do not write anything as bad as that second novel. If you've written Isn't the title... I mean, it is so out. Outrageously awful. Doesn't he call it, isn't the title Ham Sandwich? No. Club Sandwich. See, Ham Sandwich. Which apparently was inspired by Petzold's own second film, Cuba Libre. Oh. He thinks that there's I a. I thought you were going to say Ham Sandwich. No, he says there's a subconscious connection between Club Sandwich and Cuba Libre because he thinks that he was a jerk like the Thomas Schubert uh, character while making Cuba Libre, and he thinks what he made is actually not, he thinks it's not a very good film, but that he had made a very successful and acclaimed first film and was kind of riding this high yeah. and made a kind of insincere film, so. And the sophomore slump is very much a thing in film. I, you know, I don't, I don't think of it as much in literature, but you know, what there, is this? there are a lot of people who made movie? great, great first films and then completely shat the bed with their second movie, so, you know. Yeah, but this is his 15th movie. 
No, I know, but, but whatever but it is, I'm just within the context of the character. I know, I know. Absolutely, but <laughs> literature is different. I mean, so many things can go wrong in a movie. So many. Right. Um, but putting sentences down, like those sentences. <laughs> I well, I I don't have a rebuttal to that. So well, <laughs> should we move on to a move? Let's just keep yeah. crossing our fingers because yeah. f- number six guesses closing in. I think Passages? we're actually reaching kind of a a good stretch. We got the, the <laughs> some solid. Green let's see border. what it is. Let's Ooh. see what we got here. Number six is yeah. another. Oh, ouch! Yeah. My my bad. I spoke too soon. Some people. Happy. Others are disappointed. It, it isn't higher up, which is uh, which is fun. Uh, well, um, the Palm Door winner of the year. Yes, the Palm Door winner. Yeah. Um, let's take a show of hands. Who's had this in their top ten? Twin. Okay, we've got two on the panel. So let's start with. You didn't. I uh, know. I did not think this was. That yeah, one we, of my we were in agreement on this one, but. Bilga? Um, well, it's a, it's a film I like very much. It's 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 it is on my list. You know, it's it's funny when I first saw it at Cannes, um, it seemed like it would be an interesting film. I was looking forward to it, and the night before, you know, when we go to, I mean, you talked about how you were jet lagged at Berlin. This was several days into Cannes, and I was not only jet lagged, but I I knew that night I I, I knew I needed to sleep, and I couldn't could not sleep a wink and of course I went to see Anatomy of Fall I sit down the movie starts 20 minutes in I'm completely out um, and and then of sign course sign of a classic yes yeah, so, no but, but, but you know no, but like, I you're revealing slept. too right, much okay. about enough, how critics enough. watch no, movies no, so, at festivals well no but what happened was so so. but, but like I, I, you know so I saw like the first 20-30 minutes so the setup, fell asleep I don't know how much I slept but I, I caught ultimately like the last hour or so I didn't write about it for that reason I said you know, I'd love to see this again because what I saw was really interesting. Um, and as a result, you know, I didn't review it out of can, and then it won the Palm Door, and I was like, oh, great. Like, yeah. Um, and then I, I, I watched it again, you know, um, when it came to the festival. I actually saw it at the New York Film Festival again. Um, and, you know, I, 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 think it, I, I think it's a, it's a riveting movie in, in many senses. You know, I, I love the fact that it's, uh, you know, a courtroom drama, but not really. Um, you know, I, I found it very gripping. But I think ultimately, what what really makes the film for me is the way that it becomes about. It ultimately transcends, you know, the, the trial or even sort of the the domestic drama, but kind of becomes about, you know, our relationship to the truth and our relationship to what we think of as reality. Because every single person in this film kind of has their own conception of what the truth is. Um, including, you know, the person who's dead. Um, and I thought that was a really fascinating film to see at this moment in time in the world. It was interesting, though, to, to read interviews um, with, with uh, Justine Triette where, where she was talking about, like, she really did talk, does talk about it as kind of a domestic drama. I mean, she co-wrote it with Arthur Harari, who's her partner and who's also a filmmaker. And, and you do sense, like, it, it has a very lived-in sense of this, this relationship uh, that's at the heart of the film. Um, and the way that, that, you know, 
the husband and wife each has kind of their own sort of um, funnel of reality that they they did they sort of interpret everything through so that you know something you do is interpreted by the other person in the least generous way um which you know happens in relationships <laughs> when when you've been you know together for a while um so i, I yeah I, I love the film for all those reasons uh and it's one of those films i you know even after ken when i i you know i'd missed so much of it it still stuck with me. There were certain things about it that I kept thinking about, and that for me is one of the you know one of the standards of a movie, especially when I'm like making a year end list. Is am I still thinking about this movie? You know, um, and and this this is one of those, and you know I'm looking forward to actually seeing it again. And it's not you know it's not a short film either. It's you know two and a half hours long or something. So this episode of the Film Comment Podcast is supported by Netflix, presenting the extraordinary new film Maestro nominated for four Golden Globe Awards, including Best Motion Picture, Drama, Best Director and Actor, Bradley Cooper, and Best Actress, Carrie Mulligan. Cooper directs and stars as Leonard Bernstein in this epic love story chronicling the lifelong relationship of the legendary conductor-composer and his wife, actress Felicia Montalegre, played brilliantly by Mulligan. The film is brought to life through the craftsmanship of its acclaimed sound and cinematography departments, with prosthetic makeup designer Kazu Hiro undeniably transforming Cooper into Bernstein. Director Bradley Cooper conducts a masterful symphony, raves the rep. ABC News calls Maestro absolutely extraordinary. Maestro, for your consideration this awards season. Um... That's an odd description because the husband, who is dead after 15 minutes of the movie, and then we see once, I think, again, twice in flashback, but not really necessarily as he would have seen himself because the second flashback is totally through his son's eyes. So the relationship of the couple is not in the movie. I mean, we get something of the relationship through her. But for me, I just thought it was amazing the way she, Sandra Hula, inhabited that house. I have never seen anyone do that in a movie, that we're looking at two hours and the first hour and 20 minutes, maybe, is a woman living in a house after something disastrous has happened. And she goes from room to room, and she does her everyday task to keep going. And I was just mesmerized by that. And so that was like two-thirds of the movie, or maybe a third of the movie, and then the courtroom was very interesting. But the movie really nailed it when the boy, the son, has to really decide whether his mother killed his father or not and pick the story that he wants to believe. And we see them driving in a car the boy and the father, but we're seeing the father, the boy is telling us what the father was doing and what the father said, and it's kind of like a karaoke performance of the father by the boy. 
I mean, I just thought that was remarkable. There could have been no nothing else in the movie, and I would have thought that was remarkable. And you know, children, I mean, I remember uh, thinking all the time, well, if my parents get divorced, which one will I go with? And which story will I tell so the one I don't go with won't be hurt by my not wanting to go with him or her? I mean, that that's just an amazing part of the movie. I'm inclined to just give this one a pass. <laughs> I don't know. I just found that the courtroom scenes to be like extremely straight out of a TV movie kind of courtroom. There were like the prosecutor's attitude that was just kind of like unbelievable to me. In a movie that was about truth and about the different ways that we see things and that was ostensibly about that, I found its treatment of like true be human behavior to be like really lacking. And again, like I that that scene that you're talking about, I also was like, this boy is what, ten years old? He's blind. It's unbelievable to me that a 10-year-old boy would be able to independently come to the decision that his father committed suicide with that kind of... Pre I mean, just like, this is one instance. This is not even like... That scene actually works, I think, and I think is moving. But I think that throughout there are these things that happen that are, to me, just kind of like completely bonkers that make it much more like... Uh, it land, landed with me much more like a, like a TV melodrama, courtroom drama... Than, a, than any kind of like serious, thoughtful uh, investigation of the different truths that we all experience, which I thought it was kind of, and I, th I also do think like the first part up until the courtroom drama is really pretty, is like pretty good. Like I, like what you're saying, <laughs> like, I, like it really is going somewhere and it's like really interesting, but then it kind of loses me because it, it turns like the, the way that, the lawyers are arguing the, the the supposed facts that they bring to the table are just like not facts. You know, they're just sort of saying that people did things and yelling at each other and reading from her novels as if this is going to prove, you know, there's a, just, I just didn't buy it, I guess. Anyway. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't dislike this movie. I just, it didn't make as strong an impression on me as it did. On many people, I saw it at a late screening in Cannes because I missed a couple and then everyone was just saying, this is amazing. And then I, I felt, I, I thought the first 20 or so minutes that I think several of you know us have agreed was very strong. I really loved it. I loved how the movie begins. I think Sandra Hewler is fantastic. If it, I was making a performances list, she would be there. Yeah, um, I agree. And I think the opening where she's being interviewed by a journalist and her husband is playing an instrumental version of 50 Cent's Pimp. And um, she is just, she's clearly flirting with this woman. She's also sort of pushing her away a little bit. She's putting on the aura of an intellectual, but she's also sincere. She's clearly irritated at her husband. She just manages to bring together so many different sort of unplaceable, uh, un pin downable I just made up that word um emotions and that is something she does throughout the movie where it's not that she is erratic it's not that she's like changing it's that she genuinely is complex and holds multitudes within her which you know is right, but is so something that, that is it's hard like, for doesn't even make any co cohere is, as a character by the end from I mean I mean I think that as a character and performance I think it really holds up where the film also lost me is the courtroom scenes. I think that there is 
to make the points that the movie does make, which I think ultimately to me felt quite simple. You know, the points about everyone having their own truth and artist couples borrowing from their lives and how that can lead to certain kinds of resentments and all of that. I found to be very simple and to drive home those points, I did think that the movie used a number of contrivances, especially in the court scenes. Those felt very kind of dramatic and staged to me in order to arrive at these points, which I don't think are ultimately that complex. That's right, folks. The best movies of 2023. You're hearing about them (laughs) tonight. It was a good year, actually. All right. uh, Shall we move on to number five? Good, interesting, interesting choice. We've got all the strangers. Boy in the Heron, May, December. Let's see what number five is. It didn't come out this year, theatrically. Pacifiction, Albert Serra's Pacifiction. I I realized that I was not announcing the titles, and somebody had specifically requested on Twitter that we announce the titles after. We will do inserts later. Pacifiction. All right. Albert Serra. I think we've hit another... I didn't watch it. I won't watch it. (laughs) I I think Amy and I are kind of in the same boat as being uh, allergic to Albert Serra. Um, Which is why I did not see this movie initially. But then so many people I respect and love said so many great things about the film that it is, you know, it's another one of those films on my list of I got to see this at some point. Um, So I'm not, I'm not. I'm not as against seeing this movie as Amy seems to be, but I have not seen it, so I can't say too much about it. Well, we can keep it quick because we're both fans. I love this movie, yeah. Yeah. And I do think it's very different from his other movies. It is not really plot-driven, but it uh, has features kind of an amorphous spy novel vibe, I guess, that that takes the place of plot. It's about... um, uh, Benoit Magimel, am I saying that correctly? He plays a... Uh, a, a French pot- ambassador, a, diplomat. Yeah, a French ambassador in a um, in South Pacific, in Tahiti. And he's... Uh, it just sort of follows him as he as he kind of drifts around the island, maybe investigating several kind of conspiracies. Supposedly somebody there... They're going. There's rumors that they're going to restart nuclear tests off the coast. So he kind of is is telling people that no, that's not going to happen, assuring them that there's no military actions by the French government. And but maybe he's also talking to the French government about how they're doing military actions. It's unclear. Yeah. He's playing people off each other, but you don't really have any idea what he's is doing happening. Doing a lot in the of politicking. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And so this kind of it this atmosphere builds over the course of the film but you also have this you know in this incredibly beautiful landscape in Tahiti it's just uh it's a stunning film to to look at it's also like tense there's moments of tension and which is not something that i guess there are moments of tension in other albert sarah movies for sure but there's tension and but release. There's, there's intrigue, which is not something there necessarily right, right, right. In, is in his other movies. I mean, I think of this movie as a great companion piece to Lucretia Martel's Zama, which mm-hmm. is another big favorite of mine. Um, movies about bureaucrats? I mean, they're, bureaucrats. Mu- they're both movies about coloni- colonial like uh, officials right. in the colonies or so-called tropics who wield power but are like completely muddled and ineffectual. So Deroller in Pacifiction 
wears this white suit and is just so smarmy and is going around convincing everyone that he's their friend and sort of making a big show of being this powerful French, you know, diplomat. But you soon realize it's all just performance. He has no idea what's going on. There's rumors of nuclear uh, tests, which France did do in the South Pacific near French Polynesia in the 90s. It's It's something that has happened historically with you know, devastating effects on local populations. And even he doesn't know if it's true. So, you know, he's like this mid-level colonial bureaucrat who is, the powers around him are invisible and obscure to him too. And I think the movie just captures that sense, especially of like how colonization often works in the modern day uh, when it's not like direct visible violence, but it's actually these kinds of hidden machineries of power or that just you like can't... The pre- his presence is just there he doesn't yeah. even have to know anything but you know yeah. it's that you don't necessarily see it but you feel it you feel this constant paranoia you know and the paranoia is a kind of violence itself because you can't point to something right if they could see the test they could point to them and say they're nuclear tests but it's all this kind of shadiness and uh dissembling and, and there's I think that, that great character who just sort of drifts through the backgrounds of scenes who's like extremely suspicious and strange looking guy with sunglasses who, it's like a british um some kind of british right. tourist who's lost his passport you know, so it, it's, so it's funny too i mean i mean it's a funny movie I think that's what he's a British guy who's lost his passport because he got too drunk or so. I mean, it's full of these characters who are kind of buffoons, but they're also actually powerful and you don't ever really know what's going on. It also looks beautiful and has some amazing uh, lines. There's a line, there's a monologue that Deroller does in his car where he says politics is like a nightclub uh, and, you know, gives kind of his theory of politics. And I mean, it has an incredible scene of... Um, people surfing on these huge waves in the like on the beach in Tahiti that saw it two years ago at Cannes and I kind of still haven't forgotten that just the pure thrill of watching that on the screen you know just the pure overwhelming thrill better than anything I've seen in a blockbuster in years um okay let's move on to number four number four we got number four, and number four is... I'm doing an auctioneer thing now, I think. All right. We've got Fallen Leaves. Aki Karasmaki's Fallen Leaves. I am going to hope... This is one... Are we good? Have we seen this one? All right, all right. Success. I think the next three are I think safe. We're, sol- we're all We're safe. solid, yeah. yeah. Was it on either of your lists? Yeah. Oh, well, Amy... Tell us why. You know, I mean, why? I mean, Aki has never made a movie that wasn't on my list. So, um, and this one, although it is contemporary, was kind of throwback. Um, uh, The two, three movies that preceded this were both larger and darker. and while this movie um, has a moment where you think, oh yeah, the whole thing is hopeless, this woman is never going to find a guy who is worthy of her or who understands this, and she really doesn't want to be alone. And But she is just so ironic about it. 
and and then it works out for a moment. I mean, you never imagine that this is a happy ending that's going to continue after this film. But, I mean, he's going to go back and start drinking again. All that will happen. So it's about all these guys who just drink and all these women who work in terrible jobs and have to just say, forget it, goodbye, and, you know, we'll go to the movies with our friends. It's just a wonderful Aki movie. I love this movie. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I love this film, and uh, you know, I've seen it several times at this point. And and one of the things that I, I love about it is how, you know, I, I mean, I, I I like Aki Karismaki a lot. I'm, uh, you know, maybe not as much as Amy does, but um, but one of the things that, about this film that really struck me was how. Despite the fact that at any given point, what's happening to these people on screen is, by and large, awful. I mean, it's a series of like terrible things happening, and yet tonally, you know, you don't experience it as a tragedy. You're you're waiting for that that moment of 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 love and levity to come. You know, he he he's such a master of tone in that sense that you can kind of. I mean, you can kind of enjoy the misery of these characters because because you know it's going somewhere, um, and that's an achievement. I mean, that's you know, at, at just as on a craft level, that's that's an achievement, and on an art level as well. Um, you know, and, and, and as you watch it, I mean, because it's such a, you know, again, it, it could be such a bleak movie. I mean, it is bleak, but it could be such a depressing and gloomy movie. It's not. Even though the you know the Helsinki cityscape is just incredibly bleak and oppressive, and everybody is I mean you know there's so many scenes of things being thrown into the trash, and you get the sense that these characters are just like one step removed from themselves being completely discarded by society. Um, but it's but it's done with such charm and gentleness that you know you you get it. But you're also completely with it, and you're you're enjoying it because you you know it, it's such a it, it you know again it's such a charming film. It's like 82 minutes long, which thank you. 81. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know it's uh and the it's got great music, um, but also you know you, you keep hearing about the you know the 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 war in Ukraine. Uh, and you know, I mean, we know Akikarasmaki. I mean, he, he loves music, but you know, it's basically people turn on the radio and you don't hear music anymore. You hear updates about the war in Ukraine, um, which seems like a comment on on the way you know our lives are nowadays. Um, but also, like, calls back to the a fire. Like, there's this looming disaster yeah. that's like on the other side of the for Finland. You know, very close. Yeah, like up the border. Thank you for that the geography geographic note. It uh, it's amazingly tender. I mean, that's what's so great about his movies, and the tenderness is expressed in the music, in just the rhythm of the way someone looks at someone else, and yeah, it's both tender and quizzical yeah. without being mannered. It's not mannered at all. Uh, it's kind of tender and very rough hewn. So, uh, uh, yeah, he's a filmmaker for me. And, I mean, what I also like is, you know, the loneliness of the characters' lives, their alcoholism, their, all their, uh, I mean, the guy's alcoholism, the woman's what I see as a kind of loner 
loner attitude. Um, they don't feel like just quirks of, you know, these two people, but an outcome of living in a very unkind world, right? Mm. They both work these dead-end jobs with bad bosses and poor pay and horrible, like, uh, apartments. So I really appreciate that about the movie. Um, I don't want to say too much more because I just basically agree with everything you both said, but just how he manages to really depict in a very realistic way the systemic indignities of modern light uh, life sorry but also bring out these aspects of personality and relationships and these humanist uh elements of life together is is very touching for me and it, it, it's funny too you know it's like Charlie Chaplin Super movie. Funny. Well, well and, and, and funny in a way that sort of ties everything all the things like it's not like the, the things we're saying are it's like these scenes of like searing loneliness and then a joke, but like everything is tied together. It's all very organic. I mean, there's a, a this, the, 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 the moment that I, I keep coming back to is, you know, at one point, um, the man is going to come over for a date. So she goes to the store and buys another plate, and another fork, like, you know, because she only has one, you know. I mean, that's, I mean, that's Karasmaki, you know, in a nutshell, but, um, but yeah. Okay. Um, let's move on to number three, the top three. Okay, I'm really curious what people will guess for this because yeah, I know what it we, is. We got May December here, Earth Mama, two for May December. All right, let's review it. Killers of the Flower Moon. By a little indie filmmaker, Martin yeah. Scorsese. We love to spotlight, Scrappy. you know the. The small filmmakers. Uh, Amy, I think this was number one also on your list. Um, you know, I've done a bunch of lists, so this is usually number one, but sometimes it's number We're two. We're only talking about and your film I comment list. Be talk uh, yeah, right. I think we don't it's acknowledge so, others. So Killers was first. All right. Um, yeah, I think it's a really fine movie and um, a very large movie made with Scorsese's incredible attention to ethnographic detail. Uh, that's amazing. Uh, but I think it's not different from most of his other films in that it is about really evil men. Um, and I think, you know, Scorsese is a connoisseur of evil men, men who are driven by greed and um, envy and believe that if anyone else has anything, it's taking something away from them. And the De Niro character in this film, I think is, you know, a great character, hideous character kind of like, looks like, behaves like uh, the new um, Speaker of the House. <laughs> that kind of uh, um, smarminess and unctuousness and, and total dishonesty um, and, you know, murderous intent um, and actuality in this case. Uh, so I, I think that that 
trio of characters and how easy it is for him to get the DiCaprio character to do whatever he wants, despite the fact that DiCaprio seems to have genuine feelings for for Lily, for this character, for this woman. Um, uh, this Osage, very <laughs> suddenly wealthy woman, because the Osage have had the good fortune, which becomes their misfortune, to find oil on their land. And no white people are going to let them get away with that. Uh, and it is a major tragedy. Um, I read the book. The book is basically about the FBI. And it's the very end, it's, the book is what the very end of the movie becomes, an investigation. But the, I, the concept of doing this through the, this relationship uh, among these three people was remarkable. Uh, and it's a very, very, very big movie. I mean, it's one of his biggest movies in terms of camera, in terms of just miracle of Thelma's editing uh, to get that to three and a half hours. Um, and it seems to go by. I mean, for me, it went by in 20 minutes where half the movies we've been talking to, I just couldn't bear sitting through them. But this... You know, time vanished. In Best this of twenty twenty three. No, I think I. It is uh, the 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 scene that sticks with me the the most is the credit sequence. Weirdly, because the there's no music. You just have a field recording of um, a field. I imagine you just hear birds chirping and crickets chirping and and insects buzzing and wind blowing. And after what you've just seen, uh, I found that to just be like. Uh, an incredibly moving um, way to end the this story. Um, but at the end of that, you hear a woman cry. You hear a woman end. scream in the end of that sound mix. I I think this is a great movie. I did not put it on my top twenty, um, and it is something I thought about why I didn't want to, even though I liked it a lot. And I think. I think it is a remarkable work by Scorsese. I don't think it's the best way this story could have been told. And so I sort of had to like make space for that concession in my head. And I couldn't sort of really accept putting it on my list. I think it's wonderfully made. I think most of you, if you've seen it, you know there's a moment where Scorsese appears on screen. I won't say more in case some people haven't seen it which really moved me. I think his, he is so sincerely wrestling with this tragic history and how he as a filmmaker with all his resources and all his filmmaking chops can do justice to it. You know, the first draft of the story was apparently much closer to the book, was about the FBI. He brought in Osage consultants who advised and then the script was changed to put more emphasis on the Osage people. But I still found it, even as I was engrossed and absorbed, I thought that Lily Gladstone's character was done a real disservice. Um, I thought she was, she's such an incredible presence and actress. And I thought that she was kind of relegated to a suffering role, yeah. as, as were all the Osage people. And I've heard... 
and ultimately the protagonists are still the white men and people have said well that's what happened the white men came and killed them and it to me it's like no matter how bad no matter any historical incident of oppression it's never that people didn't resist and what it matters what matters is like the angle you choose to tell the story right so i feel like i need to make space in my mind and my lists for like hopefully a native filmmaker who in the future has the resources to tell this story from their point of view where the indigenous people are the protagonists and so that is just something i wanted to say like i admire the movie but i just cannot i have to sort of say that i don't think it's the best way to tell this particular story that does the most grace to the people the story is about in my view um i couldn't disagree more um i would hope there is a native filmmaker who could make this story and tell it differently so far and and you know sundance has been cultivating native filmmakers for a long long time and some of the work is really good but this isn't a story about that this is a story about the horrors of american history and the people who created those horrors. Uh, it's a story that um, I think is more horrible than any of the mafia stories, but these people were gangsters in exactly the same way. Um, and I think that story needs to be told and that he told it brilliantly. You know, it's the same argument without giving any, that people are making about Oppenheimer. Why didn't we go to Japan? Well, Oppenheimer didn't see Japan in his head. Um, I, I just have no patience for, you shouldn't make these stories because you aren't a native person and a native I, person would, would tell it differently. Absolutely. And I would love to see that film. I this mean, doesn't I stop that film from being made. I don't think Scorsese shouldn't tell the story, but I didn't think he told it well enough. I mean, I think I think that it's a it's a great film, and I don't. I mean, he can tell whatever story he wants, but I do think that the film does a disservice to its native characters. I wouldn't go so far as to say that he has no right to tell the story, but I think that the native characters don't get their full due, and so I will wait for like a story about this history that does that. I think, before I can really celebrate this. I want to chime in with two things. Um, one, uh, interesting fact, a Native filmmaker has made this story. It's a film called The Tragedy of the Osage Hills, and I believe it was made in 1922 um, by a local Oklahoma filmmaker, and I'm blanking on his name. I should have looked it up beforehand. Um, the film is lost. It's gone um, and it wasn't a Hollywood production so it's you know it's not like somebody's gonna find a print somewhere in a studio vault somewhere um, you know but in the silent era there were like local independent filmmakers who made movies uh, you know in their you know regional filmmakers as we have now um, a fascinating story other films of his do exist I believe but um, but tragedy of Osage Hills is tragically gone but it also speaks to the fact that this is um, this is a story that, and the, the, the Killers of the Flower Moon sort of 
makes this point a little bit as well. But it is a it is a story that people were familiar with. It. That that's like part of the tragedy is that you know we we don't know the story anymore. But once upon a time, this was actually like a well known story that was recounted. There's a Jimmy Stewart movie called The FBI Story that's also about this, um, and you know and and Scorsese gets at that and that you know wonderful final scene where he has the cameo which i review which i ruined in my review and got yelled at by people on twitter um but i wanted to say something else about i like this film a lot i, I think it's a very good film it also was not on my top 20 um and i you know bow to no one in my love of martin scorsese um but um the thing that for and, and i mean you know i know very often i, I wind up talking about these films almost like on a technical craft level, um, in part because that's something that interests me, but I do think it speaks to some of the other issues we talk about. What happens, I think, here is, I think the film kind of loses Lily Gladstone's character in that final hour or so. Um, I don't know if it's the last hour or so, and, I, and, I, and that's the part where the film kind of loses me. But not because, not just because it loses her a little bit, but also because I have to say, I don't think Leonardo DiCaprio is that strong in the final act of this movie. I think he's real. ironically enough, I think he's great in the first half when he's playing like a 20-year-old. I mean, the, the man is my age. Um, <laughs> later, when he's playing a little older and, and we're seeing him wrestling with kind of the investigation and then kind of wrestling with Hale. De Niro is fantastic. This is one of the greatest performances Incredible. he's ever given. Yeah. Um, and it was funny because as I was watching DiCaprio in the final sort of 40, 45 minutes of the film, 30 minutes, whatever, um, I kept thinking what a young De Niro could have done with this part because, because DiCaprio, for some reason, he, he's not very good at playing dumb. And this is a very dumb character. That's, you know, I mean, that's, I, and Scorsese has made a lot of movies about dumb characters. I mean, deep characters, but dumb. Um, and, De Niro was so young. De Niro was so good at playing those characters and, and giving layers to that. And DiCaprio, for me, you know, it was just kind of like, I mean, how much, how much more can his lower lip, you know, swallow his nose? You know, um, I, I, I'm being glib. I don't want to be glib. I think it's a very good film. I think it's an important film. I, I, I'm very happy that Martin Scorsese made it. Um, and you know, it's a, it's an achievement certainly. But I do think that there are certain things about the film that that like prevented me from being able to fully embrace it. And I, I, oddly enough, like while I'm coming at those from a craft level, like oh, DiCaprio's maybe not as good, blah blah blah. I do think it speaks to why, because I know other people who've, who've had this issue with the film, not because Scorsese chose to make it, but because because somewhere along the way, there's and some of it I think is also because of the adaptation they do. As Amy noted, it's a brilliant choice to not adapt the book because the book is a book is riveting, but it's a it's a procedural, right? I mean, the film basically ruins the book in the first like twenty minutes because in the book you you discover that you know William Hale has been doing these things and and like the big revelation in the book is that you know DiCaprio's character Ernest Burkhardt has been poisoning his wife. Um, we're like totally ruining the movie now for anybody who hasn't seen it at this point. But, um, but, 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 but this, I mean, this becomes, a lot of this becomes relatively clear fairly early on yeah, in the it's, film. It's not really a yeah, surprise right. really in the like film it. at all. And, but, yeah. but what happens is, and, I, and I, I can't help but think that at the end, because they knew they were still adapting this book, they still had to put some of the procedural and some of the court cases. Because yeah. think about something like Goodfellas. The trial in Goodfellas, it's 
30 seconds long and just just walks right through that room and it's done. Whereas here it's kind of like, oh wait, we're like a we're like a courtroom drama now, you know? Um it's still Scorsese. He can still direct the hell out of a scene. So it's still, it's good. The movie is really, really, really fucking good. It's just not perfect. And that's, you know, we, we expect perfection from him, which we probably should. And that, folks, is why it's number three. Oh, I haven't three. seen any perfect movies. Uh, Wait till you get to number one. Yeah. <laughs> Shall we move to number two? Or do you want, did you have, did you want to? No. Go ahead. No, I don't. All right. She's got nothing. We got number two. The number two movie of right, 2023 guys. is... Your what best guesses. Oppenheimer. A lot of Oppenheimers. Mm. Clearly not familiar with the Film Comment podcast. <laughs> <laughs> not regular listeners. What? All right. Although... Guys, La Chimera was not a theatrical release this We already year. had to tell all the critics to take it off their list. It was yes. a big pain. You're bringing up painful memories. Let's see what number two is. Uh, Kelly Reichardt showing up. I was so proud of our critics when I saw this movie at number two. Same. This was my number I one movie. I love this think. movie. Yeah. I think I'm now not remembering what my list was, but this I think this was Amy, Is this a movie you have seen, liked? <laughs> it's on my top twenty. It's on my top twenty list. It's on my top twenty list. Um, it's not top ten, but uh, but I I I love it. Um. It's uh, it's actually another one of those films um, where the film stuck with me in ways I didn't necessarily anticipate that it would. Uh, when I first saw it, I, I enjoyed it. I think it's a really good film. I enjoyed it, but I did not think this was, this was like top-tier Kelly Reichardt. You know, like, I mean, there are films of his that I think are, films of hers that I think is, that I think are, you know, I mean, I've been, I mean, Old Joy was my favorite film of the year. It came out, and Wendy and Lucy was right up there, too. Um and uh, I, so I, th I thought, okay, good movie, nice movie, great performances, interesting subject. And then like, couldn't stop thinking about it and couldn't stop thinking about these characters, at, you know, as like, as if they were like real people that I could talk to or like call and ask for their thoughts on things. I mean, uh, that's, you know, the, the, it, she creates such a great lived in milieu and, and it's clearly very personal for her because it's about an artist who, um, you know, artist with a day job played by Michelle Williams who makes these kind of, you know, very sort of rough, gentle, uh, rough like sculptures of, of women and things like that. And she's, but she's not a particularly well-known artist. I mean, she's she's known in her community, but she's not like a, she's not like showing at like these huge galleries and things like that. And then she, she has her um, her landlord and friend who is a much more established artist. And you know the the film is kind of about just the the fact that this person just keeps doing her work and showing up i mean showing up is what's that that expression where that comes from um you know 95% of life is just showing up or whatever it is um and I, yeah it reminded me of like somebody who uh, studied with peter hutton once told me that he said if you just keep doing it eventually eventually you'll just be the last person still doing it <laughs> No, it's true. I mean, it's it's it is true of, of of a lot of things, not just not just art. Um, but uh, you know, wait, it, wait, and am I misremembering? Is this film dedicated to Peter Hutton? I think First Cow was. First Cow was. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
But yeah, I go ahead, Bulga. No, no, I was just gonna. The, the, the only thing I was gonna say was um, my colleague Allison Wilmore uh, at Vulture. This was her, I believe, number one movie of the year, and she, you know, she she wrote a great review of it, and she talked about how, you know, Kelly Reichardt must must feel a certain amount of, um, you know. Per, personal investment in this movie and this character because she also is is a person who makes these sort of very particular small films even though she's gained some success doing it but then like you know she's she's making them alongside you know for the for the same company like a24 is like uh you know ariaster and the daniels and these people who are like <laughs> you know becoming kind of brand names while she just kind of perseveres at her sort of small scale films um which I thought was an was an interesting way to look at it. I, I, you know, again, it's it's a film. I only saw it once. It's not a movie that I keep returning to, but it's a movie I can't stop thinking about. Um, and that's what you know. That's that's I think. I think a lot of people are in that boat. Um, I think it's her best movie since Wendy and Lucy, uh, and I was so glad that she was working in a small space that's contemporary, because you know the period films I have no use for at all. First Cow or, you know, the, the one before it. And, and the, I just don't think she has a clue about how you make rhythms of people moving in large spaces. But she really does know how to take one person in an enclosed space. Um, I I really think this is a fabulous movie, and um, and it changed very much on me. I mean, I liked it all along, uh, but I just found the end transcendent, and the end when this show that this young woman has finally, against all obstacles, put together, and is so potentially disrupted in these fragile sculptures that are kind of like, you know, they're somewhere between fine art and pottery and uh, and people and things are just, it's just going to be chaos in this gallery. And there's a bird, and there have been birds in the movie all the way through, and the bird suddenly starts to fly up. And the next scene is these two women who have been at odds, the, the artist we know, and the much more successful, you know, I'm gonna make it and I'm not gonna concentrate on anything else and anyone else's needs mm -hmm. till I make it. And they should hate each other at this point, but they don't. And they walk down this street and the light changes and you're so aware of the sky above them it's absolutely transcendent. I mean, it's one of the rare transcendent moments in a movie this year. So, yeah. And yeah, all of their, it really was on my list. All of their conflict just kind of dissolves in that light. I think that that moment is really like that moment really stuck with me too. Yeah, I I love this movie. I think it's. I just I have nothing to add, honestly. I think Same. you guys covered everything. I I do want to underline so much lovely there that there is lovely about this movie, the depiction of art making, Michelle. Uh, Williams and Hong Chao's performances of these kinds of not very glamorous artists. You know, Michelle mm -hmm. uh, Williams is just so curmudgeonly. And sort of like a more believable version of the guy from A Fire, I was thinking. <laughs> 
Like they're much more precise. You're just and connecting everything through. to a Not fire, to aren't you? <laughs> I just hate that movie. <laughs> there is some kinship there for sure. Maybe um, it's a better movie than I thought. No. But you know, the, just a movie about like it's a movie oh, she's about thought. <laughs> it's about thought. That's the way I saw it. <laughs> really? That Her is the Todd? way I saw it about the relationship Her between Todd Haynes and. I had I had not thought of that, and now I will think about that. <laughs> well, guess what? No. I'm sorry. Guess Wait. what? It's time to move on to number one movie. It's Oppenheimer. <laughs> it's it could be Past Lives, and Past Lives is likely. Let's reveal the number one movie of the film comment, best of 2023 poll. Oh, it's made us. Who would have guessed? Once again, Todd Haynes has defeated Kelly Reichardt. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We'll see what the next movie. I, I I'm sure she'll be listening to this. Right, exactly. Yeah. I will say the uh, margin was not huge between no. the, the points between showing up and May December. So, uh, you know, it's a, a matter of inches. Um, a matter of inches. Um, but yeah, this was my number one movie. It was on top of my list, and I sort of had a sense it would be when I saw it at Cannes. Not that, you know, I I, uh, I, I wasn't like not open-minded, but nothing, nothing really. You have like a page in your notebook that's like number one, <laughs> and you write down. Heart. Right. Uh, but no movie this year has just made, you know, May, uh, Amy, you were saying like there's no perfect movie, and I agree, like perfection is not something I would use as a category but when I saw this movie I did you know I this movie is perfect I have no notes everything and by perfect I don't mean that it couldn't be done better or anything but there is Todd Haynes does have this way of everything is so perfectly calibrated right like every single gesture and moment is thought through without feeling cold like it's so beautifully and intricately designed but it never feels cold or predetermined but anyway, I have a lot to say about this movie, but maybe I should let um, some of our guests chime in first, so because otherwise I might just take up all the time. Amy Boga? Uh, I like this movie a lot. It's on my 10 best, but quite low down. Um, I was more interested in what Todd Haynes was forced to try out I mean, this is a really strange movie. It has two major women stars, and yet he could only raise $2 million to make it. The movie is shot in the particular way it's shot, which is basically one long take per scene, because he couldn't afford any coverage. They made it in 20 days. It kind of was going back to early... Uh, independent filmmaking in its economy. Okay, so th all that I found extremely interesting. Uh, I think the reason that you, he couldn't raise money on those two amazing actors is that they are playing monstrous characters. Horrible. Uh, they're really these two horrible, willful women who have no idea what they're doing to the people around them and couldn't care less. And, um, and I thought, well, okay, 
that's interesting. That's a kind of counter what everyone is very carefully, if you have women characters, they have to be positive characters. These are not positive characters, and I admire the film a lot for that, but I don't like it. Mm. I admire it. Um, And, um, you know, the strategy of just throwing that music, the entire score, from the go-between over it and just blanketing it with that is very interesting because Todd always does references, but I'm not sure why it's a blanket. I mean, I certainly liked it, but why there is so much of it. And I know that there is one terrible moment in this movie, one really miscalculation, which is when Juliet goes to the refrigerator and has that line about not maybe there's not enough hot dogs, and you hear the go-between uh, over it, and that's the moment that everyone thinks, well, this movie is camp. Right. Well, it isn't. It isn't at all camp. It is about. It is genuinely felt. These women are not in any way exaggerated. This is who they are in an extremely realist way. Um, I, so, so I want to defend that moment. <laughs> I because I I know that you did a great interview with Todd that I read recently at uh, our beloved sister publication, Sight and Sound. Sound where they the give the money from the BFI to have a real magazine. We do our. <laughs> but. But in that interview, I know Todd said he's irritated with people bringing up that scene, and it was a conversation you both had about camp. I love that scene, and I I am one of those annoying people who's been talking about that scene for months, but not because I think it's an example of camp, but because I think that that's when you understand that there are two layers to this movie, and one of them, like the use of the go-between score, that scene also has a zoom in. And there are other elements of this movie that have to do to me with soap opera, melodrama, tabloid, um, you know, tabloid scandals. And the movie uses the formal gestures of all those modes, but as a red herring. So like you see that zoom in and you see that music and you think that this is, you know, she's gonna be this campy melodramatic heroine. And you keep thinking, you know, what does what do these melodramatic gestures do? They tell you what to feel, right? In a melodrama, when there's a zoom in or there's a swell of music, you are told this is a dramatic moment. This is sad. This is scary. And so the movie uses those gestures, but what actually happens doesn't match what these form- formal gestures are telling you to think. And that's what I find so fascinating about the movie, that it constantly is putting these red herrings in your way to like telling you how the world and how the media world and cinema and TV tells you to read stories of abuse and you know stories of power and control but what the movie leaves you with is that sometimes you just can't make sense of it you know you go through the movie thinking we'll get some backstory for Julianne Moore. And there's a moment where you think you do. You have a backstory for why she did this awful thing. But then the last scene of the movie, I won't like spoil it, leaves you uncertain again. Like, is this backstory even true? And so after all of these sort of signs and signals, ultimately you're left with just 
you can't make sense of people sometimes and you especially can't make sense of bad people sometimes and that's what's really scary about the world yeah to me but to me what i'm left with is the just the sadness of the charles melton character who i think is like so good in this i keep thinking about that scene with his son his graduating son on the roof when he's like smoking a joint with him or something and then just he like completely kind of breaks down but then like gathers himself I don't, that scene is really powerful and i think uh pushes against the tabloid stabbing strings the um go between sound soundtrack which i also think is really was my favorite part of the movie still because it was just so strange and just added this kind of iridescent glow to everything um bilga you have um, five I, minutes <laughs> I really like this film too. It's it's in my top twenty. Um, what I love about it is, and I think I said this in my review, but it's like a, a the, the the film is filled with like booby traps, right? It's always there's always this tension between, and you you mentioned this. I mean the 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 way the movie is kind of suggesting you feel and the way you feel. I mean there's there's that constant disconnect. I think is where the movie lies. You know. There's things about it that are very funny. There are things about it that are very tragic. They're very moving. But at, you know, at any given point, you're constantly doubting whether you should be feeling the things you're feeling or whether you should be feeling something else, intentionally so. Um, so I think, I think it's very brilliant in that sense. And also, I think, I mean, Todd Haynes is a master of that. Um, and... Yeah, I mean, the, the, the camp discussion is, is kind of funny. I do think he's playing with elements of camp, in part because he's trying to get us to kind of think about the movie in certain ways and then leading us in other ways. Um, you know, you, I mean, we've seen films about subjects like this that have been broad comedies. We've seen films about such subjects that have been, like, great tragedies. We've seen films about these subjects that have been thrillers um, or horror movies. I mean, so, you know, he's kind of embracing everything and... You know, like in a weird way, even though he's giving it this sort of treatment in which, you know, apparently a lot of it has to do with how limited his resources were. In a weird way, the film is totalizing in that sense. It's like the ultimate movie about this subject because it contains all of these things in it. Um, so I think I think it's great. And, you know, it's like this is a this is one case. You know, we, we rail sometimes about like Netflix picking up movies and, and burying them. That has not happened with me, December. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a net, Netflix bought it, it can. And I don't think it's gotten like a great theatrical release or anything, but like people are seeing this movie, people are engaging with it, you know, people are talking about it. And, you know, that's, there's a case where I think the film being on a streamer actually really, really has helped it. And it's a Todd Haynes movie. I love, I mean, every time Todd Haynes has a big film that's like acclaimed, but I had this feeling during Carol as well. You know, it's like so many of us, I mean, people my age, like we like grew up with Todd Haynes. You know, like I remember being a teenager and uh, seeing the Karen superstar, the Karen Carpenter story, you know, in like a rundown art house in, in Washington, D.C. This was before it was legally removed. Um, so like the idea of like Todd Haynes, the guy who did that, and then he did Poison, and like now he's like making movies for Netflix. I mean, He's not making movies for Netflix. He's making like $2 million movies that Netflix is then buying. But but still, like, I love the fact that he's become kind of a, a brand name filmmaker over the years. And Kara, a superstar was 35 years ago and that he's still at the top of his form and making kind of movies that 
build on his oeuvre, but are also trying new things. Um, yeah, I, I felt when I watched this movie, I felt very justified and rewarded in my just investment in my fandom of Todd Haynes. I'm like, this is a good guy to bet on. <laughs> yeah. well, did you win some money? I, I, I won joy good. and pleasure of good art. Well, it's better than money, <laughs> ultimately. Um, so now uh, we will show the, a slide with the rest of the 10, so like the full top 20. So let's do that first. So I'll, I'm going to read out the latter 10 so that the people on the podcast have it too. So number 11 is Dry Ground Burning. Number 12 is Passages. Number 13 is Trenke Lauken. Number 14 is Orlando, My Political Biography. Number 15 is Dehumani Corporis Fabrica, which came up earlier. Number 16, oh God, I should have... Clint, why don't you take over now? Because uh, I'm not a French speaker, but <laughs> Menu Plaisse Les Trois Gois, <laughs> the Wiseman film about the French restaurant. Uh, number 17 is Youth Spring, the Wang Bing film, which I think should be much higher. Uh, number eight, is it no editorializing? Opinions, no, no, not allowed. <laughs> number 18, Asteroid City. Number 19, uh, Alain Gomez's Rewind and Play. I really just, I'm going to quickly editorialize and say that I was very surprised and happily so to see it make the top 20. Uh, and number 20, The Boy and the Heron, the yeah. Miyazaki film. And now the. Probably our favorite list that we do, as I said, uh, are the best undistributed films, which, you know, some of you may not have seen, but hopefully will get to see next year. So let's unveil the undistributed films. So number one is The Human Search 3 by Teddy Williams that we showed at NYFF. Number two is Eureka, Lisandro Alonso's film. Number three, Close Your Eyes by Victor Erice. Number four, and I know, Bilga, you're a big fan of uh, Close Your Eyes, if I remember. Number four, Allensworth. Not announced. Unannounced. Yeah. Somebody picked it up? It's not been made uh, public yet. As far, like, uh, yeah. Mm, <laughs> maybe you have some inside info, maybe. <laughs> some, yeah. Number four is Allensworth by uh, James Benning. A, a treasure of American cinema. <laughs> Number five is Gush by Fox Maxi. Clint, do you want to do the last five? Uh, number six is Miko Rivereza's Nowhere Near. Number seven is Philippe Garel's The Plow. Um, number eight is Martine Reitman's La Practica, uh, a film that I liked, but Devika didn't. <laughs> I can't. Uh, number nine is About 30, uh, an Argentinian film. I don't know the name of the... Martin Shanley. Martin yeah. Shanley. And number 10 is uh, Lois Patino's Samsara. Um, some of these films may already have distribution, and we just don't know about it. But yeah. uh, at the time of... At press time... They had uh, not they announced. Not been, they had not been announced. Yeah. I don't know if people voted I, for that one. I didn't see it, but I because I don't think a lot of people... I don't think enough people Joker, saw it. I think right? there was actually one that I remember, but definitely not enough. I think it premiered at Toronto, right? I but remember But it was immediately kind of like... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Fancy Dance has been shouted out. Cool. 
But Fancy Dance has distribution. Yeah, right? it, it, it's distribution. really, yeah, 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 it, it right. really is. Um, oh, La Chimera. Uh, it's coming out it's next coming year. It's coming out next year. I believe it has distribution. Yeah. I, I, you don't know that one. The, Unfortunately, we don't know. We're not total experts on what has distribution and doesn't have distribution. <laughs> But we do our research. We did. We did kind of go through what our top ten and figure out and kind of figure out which yeah. ones were coming out and which ones weren't. So, but we can heartily recommend all these films. I think. Yeah. Um. So thank you so much for joining us on this journey. A very very special thank you to Amy and Bilga. Would you all put your hands together for them? So so fun to count down the films with them. Tonight on filmcomment.com, you can find both these lists with original appreciations on each film by film comment contributors, uh, which I really recommend you check out. They make a case for the films. Tomorrow, we will send out the final film comment letter of the year, which will round up all the lists, all, which will also have our best shorts and best restorations lists. We will have the podcast version of this talk for those any friends of yours who couldn't make it. And, and individualists. And yes, we will have individual ballots of, you know, men, like the many, many, many people who voted in our poll that you can explore. So, yeah, happy reading and thanks again for joining and happy holidays, y'all. Yes, thank you. Happy holidays. <laughs>